Hello. Hi. Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and weird stuff. I am half of your host, Hattie James. I am your other half of your host, Ace. Hi, Ace. Hi, Hattie. How are you? I'm good. I just moved and my entire spine just cracked. So that's a, we'll see if that was a good crack or not. <laughs> I notice it's less uh, ooky spooky yeah. uh, in your room. The, the vibe is less prog witch and more uh, <laughs> nocturnal being uh, in a fluorescent room. I figured if now that I'm going to be reading my notes off my screen, I should have a better light behind me. That saves so, from the uh, the frog boys are are great for mood lighting, but like as far as like functional lamps, not so much. Yeah, <laughs> they're mainly for like the aesthetic. But it's um, a good aesthetic. Yeah, to say I think we got all of our small talk done in the other episode. <laughs> oh no! Uh, any, oh. What what bantery things can we do for this episode? Wait, oh. I I have a. My son's having his first picture day and his first spirit week coming oh, up. That's cute. He, we got him like we got him a little outfit. Yes. I see plaid. It is. Oh my gosh, yes. It's a for the the listeners who aren't seeing this Zoom call, it's like a little pair of really soft black sweatpants, a a blue t-shirt and a black and white plaid shirt. Uh, this he's gonna wear this buttoned up for his picture day and then he's also gonna wear it the Friday of his uh, spirit week because Monday is pajama day where we got him these Mickey Mouse and Pluto pajamas very Um, cute he only goes to daycare Monday Wednesday and Friday so Monday is is pajama day so we got him those jam jams and Wednesday is nerd day so we're gonna put him in his baby yoda cutest in the galaxy t-shirt and then we're gonna reuse what he wore on picture day because it's funky flannel friday (laughs) oh see that the the themed spirit days are very fun and cute when you're when you're a kid by the time i got yeah the time i got to high school i was so over it and the way my high school was set up was that there you had three options on like a spirit day or a dress. We had the, the dress down days, they yeah. called them. If it was because yes, you went to a Catholic school. Yeah, I went to Catholic code. school. If it was a themed spirit day, you had three options. You could either if you you could come dressed according to the theme. You could come dressed in regular everyday clothing, but you had to pay student council $5. Or you could just wear the regular school uniform for free. So you had two free options and one option that cost money. Yeah. And most of the time I opted for the uniform because I'm like, um, I hate everyone on school at student council. They're not getting my money. (laughs) And a lot of, I hit by the time they were like, it's pajama day. And I'm like, I'm not wearing my pajamas to school. Are you kidding? Like, first of all, how do you know I don't sleep naked? Like, that's there's a loophole here somewhere that I'm not keen to find out. Uh, um, but also, I'm like, I sleep in like clothes that are no longer good enough to be worn outside of my house. And you want me to come into school wearing like paint stained t shirts and sweatpants with holes on them that I can, they're so big, I can pull them up over my tits. Like, no, I'm not wearing that to school. That's not 
no or like sometimes the themes were like 80s themed and i'm like i don't have any 80s themed clothes i mean can we do 50s themed i have my mom's old poodle skirt but yeah um (laughs) my i was as someone who was heavily bullied spirit weeks were awful because pajama day it's like i could wear the exact same pajamas as a popular kid and i would be bullied for it and like we had like a tie-dye yeah, we had a couple tie-dye days. Tie-dye days. Uh, there was school color day. That one was easy because our school colors were blue and white. So it was like Mine white were t-shirt. Also blue and white. <laughs> yeah. White t-shirt, blue jeans. Bada bing, bada boom. I'm participating. Well, school color day. I was, I was like, you mean, how is that different from every other day? Because our uniform, all of like the components of our uniform were in our school colors. Yeah. Like white Oxford shirt, blue pullover sweater. Like that's our, that, and khakis. That was our uniform yeah height of fashion <laughs> yeah the mm-hmm. one day i was real enthused about i don't remember what the actual name of the theme was but it was basically like n- nothing you wore could match like you basically it was like clashing whatever something we had opposite day or backwards day we had backwards day which is where you had to wear everything backwards that, oh, one that sounds awful. uncomfortable <laughs> yeah um yeah it- pants are not designed to be worn that way <laughs> yeah um, Unless they're leggings and then it doesn't matter. But no, this was like a, I had, I, I borrowed my sister. It was like the one of the few times in my life I've actually Was it Crazy Color heels. Day? We Something had one like called, that. Like Yeah, I we had, had one a, called Crazy Color Day. I had like a weird, like speaking of tie-dye, I had like a paisley tie-dye dress that was orange and purple that I wore with like rainbow print leggings. And I stole these platform shoes from my sister that she got at Hot Topic that were black platform boots with flames on them. And then I had like one pigtail, like high ponytail and then one braid. And it was like mismatch day or something. Yeah. That one, I was like, I am here for this one. They're like, dress like a nightmare. You got it. (laughs) We had a, a silly hat day. Oh, yeah, we have one of those. I came in with a bowler hat. Yeah, I had, because uh, I went to, my. I was lucky my parents saved up uh, for years and let us go to, to Disney World when I was nine. And I got the Minnie Mouse uh, with the, the red, kind of like a bowler hat style or like a, what is the, the I used to have a million of them uh, post-college. What were they? The, uh, like the felt press. No, the felt pressed. It was like, a, I call it like a female bowler hat. Oh, 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 oh like the flapper hat? Yes, flapper hat. So it was a red flapper hat with a spiral wire with a fl- with a daisy flower on the top ah, oh that's so cute and i wore that in elementary school and then i started getting bullied and i stopped participating in spirit days yeah okay it's like 10 09 p.m okay uh, yeah let's... we can get into this okay so um it's not like super long it's i don't have 12 pages of notes this time don't worry that's, that's good uh <laughs> it's so eight pages it's double it's eight pages double space. It's eight pages double space, which means it's really like four pages. Ace. What? Okay. 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 One of these pages is just my sources that spilled over to another page. So it's three single spaced pages. Okay. That I had to double space because otherwise I can't read it because I'm old. <laughs> I guess that's better. Um, so basically for the listeners who are as lost as we often are, uh, I did a spookum. So it's Ace's turn to do a crime. crime. Today, I am going to tell you this. Once again, this is a topic that 
I picked because I read about it in a book one time and I was like, this is a very good book. I should talk about this person. Um, So today I'm going to tell you about William Chester Minor. Dr. William Chester Minor. (laughs) Never heard of him. Sorry, I didn't mean, I'm not yawning because you're boring. I'm I'm yawning yawning because it's 10 10 o'clock at night. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Dr. William Chester Minor was born in what is now Sri Lanka. Uh, his parents were missionaries from Connecticut. So he was born while his parents were doing their mission work. He yes. lived and traveled with his parents and a lot a lot of siblings. Missionaries? Was. Don't you mean religious colonizers? Yes, yes, I do. Especially since this was the 1800s. <laughs> the heyday of that. Anyway, uh, he so he traveled around with his parents doing all that fun colonizing stuff uh, until he was about 14 when he moved to the United States to live with his, I believe his grandparents uh, or other relatives in New Haven, Connecticut, so that he was able to attend uh, Russell Military Academy. Uh, Russell Military Academy, it's defunct now, it's closed. But at the time it was a college prep school that was kind of just a pipeline directed to getting its students ready to be admitted to either Yale or West Point. And the school succeeded in its goal with William. Uh, After he completed his lessons at Russell, he enrolled in Yale Medical School. Now, during his studies at Yale Medical School, he supported himself. He paid his way through school by working part-time as an instructor at Russell Military Academy and also as an assistant on the 1864 revision of Webster's Dictionary. This was like kind of in the early days of when the first dictionaries were kind of coming together. And the way that they did this was they basically got volunteers to submit words. They're like, hey, we're putting together a dictionary of words. Send us all the words you know and what they mean and as much history about them as you know. And then we will compile them into this dictionary. Um, So he was working as an assistant on the 1864 revision. Uh, This was not the original Noah Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language. That was first printed in 1828, later revised in 1841. The one he was working on was related to an abridgment published not by Noah Webster, but by his assistant and later chief competitor, Joseph. I'm going to go with Worcester because that's how it's spelled. Worcester. That's that's not how it's spelled. And I don't. W-R-R-C-H-E-S-T-E-R. Yes. Worcester. Anyway, Worcester and <laughs> Webster's Worcester. son. <laughs> uh, so him and Webster's son-in-law. Uh, published an abridged version of Webster's original American Dictionary of the English Language about a year after Webster published his original one. It's the same dictionary with the same number of words and the same definitions, but with kind of like truncated literary references, and they expanded the etymology of it. So essentially, he took Webster's dictionary, expanded the lore, (laughs) and it was ultimately the more successful version. So um, then when Webster... This is some brief, this has nothing to do with the crime. This is just a brief aside of how dictionaries happen. Um, When Webster died in 1843, all of his works and the rights to his copyright and also the copyright of the name Webster, like in relation to any dictionaries published, were purchased by the brothers George and Charles Merriam, who then hired Webster's son-in-law. Webster. Yeah, Merriam, this is how we got Merriam Webster. Um, so they hired Webster's son-in-law and another man uh, named Noah Porter, who were both professors at Yale, to work on revisions to these dictionaries. And so the 1864 revision was the first real significant overhaul, and it, they really expanded it 
uh, it contained 114,000 entries, whereas the original had only contained like 70,000. Uh, so it was the first major overhaul of the Webster's Dictionary. It was also the first dictionary to be known as unabridged. I did say that uh, the dictionaries have nothing to do with the crime, but do keep the, the fact that he worked on this dictionary in mind. It will be relevant again later. Okay. So William graduated from Yale in 1863 with a medical degree. Uh, he specialized in comparative anatomy. He kind of dicked around for a little bit working at a hospital in New Haven. And then he joined the Union Army. So uh, in the Army, he worked as a surgeon. Uh, he may have been present at the Battle of the Wilderness in May of 1864. This was a notable battle for being A, the first battle of Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant and General George G. Meade's uh, Virginia Overland campaign against Robert E. Lee, and B, having brutal casualties on both sides, over 5,000 men killed in total in that one battle. There is a little bit of disagreement as to whether or not Minor was present at this battle as the battle took place in early May of 1864 and his military records place him as not arriving in Virginia until mid-May. But it's also possible that the records are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, as later on in his life, Minor absolutely exhibited the type of mental illness that would be consistent with battle-related PTSD. Okay. So at the end of the Civil War, Minor stayed in the Army, and he was stationed in New York City, spent a lot of time on Governor's Island, which is where you would be stationed in New York City if you uh, worked for the military. He also spent a lot of his time in the Red Light District and spent a lot of his off-duty time with sex workers. Okay. The Army did not really like that very much. Uh, they thought that reflected poorly on them. And so in 1867, Minor is transferred to a very secluded post in the Florida Panhandle. And this is when he began exhibiting a little bit more uh, bizarre behavior, including very severe paranoia. So in 1898, the Army responded to his growing mental instability by uh, placing him in St. Elizabeth's Hospital, the government hospital for the insane which was a psychiatric hospital in Southeast Washington, D.C. And this was the first federally operated psychiatric hospital in the U.S. So he had about 18 months of treatment here, and he was permitted to resign his army commission on the grounds of, quote, incapacitated by causes arising in the line of duty, which is uh, army talk way of saying that war we did broke this man to the point where we don't know how to unbreak him. So I guess uh, we start giving him his pension because we don't know what else to do. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, I mean, there was a lot of that after the Civil War. The Civil War was not great for the general mental health of the people who fought it. No. As uh, most wars are. Most wars are not. Yeah. He was discharged from his hospital in 1871. Uh, he moved to London kind of uh as a thing we're calling it like a vacation it was one of those things that people did like in the 1800s where they're like ah you seem to be suffering from a, a thing go to a place for a change of scenery that will be good for you go to the seaside breathe that ocean air that kind of thing yes uh, he just talked over with his family they decided like a oh, change of scenery might be good for you so why don't you go on vacation for a bit like uh travel a little bit, take up painting. He sat to London. He first settled in a hotel in the West End. He spent some time traveling by train to visit some of the major cities in Europe. 
he met British artist John Ruskin on the recommendation of one of his friends from Yale, and he took up painting as a form of relaxation therapy. And so he did that for a little bit. And then after this, he moved from his hotel in the West End to take up lodgings in Lambeth Marsh, which was a part of London at the time that was a lot rougher than someone of his means and class would have been expected to live in The book that I read that kind of got me interested in this topic is a book by Simon Winchester. And in his book, uh, he describes Lambeth March as a, quote, a jumble of slums and sin that crouched dark and ogre-like on the banks of the Thames just across from Westminster. Few respectable Londoners would ever admit to venturing there. So, yeah. People lived there. It wasn't like neighborhoods and like people lived there, but I guess because he came from between like his pension and uh, like his parents were missionaries, but like a lot of his family came from money. I think like they were a little Mm -hmm. bit like quote higher class. So it was, it was weird to people that he decided to move there. He was like, ah, this, this is a good place. I will live here. They're like, but you have money. Why? Yeah. When asked about his choice uh, later, he admitted that it offered him uh, more easy access to women. So, uh, Uh. yes, without the army to keep tabs on his behavior, he fell back into old habits and began keeping frequent company of sex workers. I would like to make a quick aside here just to say that there is nothing wrong with seeking out sex work. Sex work is real work. I have nothing but respect for people who make their living in this field. Get that naughty accounting money. Uh, The unfair treatment sex workers receive at the hands of law enforcement, I believe, is unacceptable. Uh, The targeting that sex workers are receiving at the hands of evangelical extremists who refuse to draw a distinction between legitimate voluntary sex work and sex trafficking is abhorrent. It is only leading to further misinformation that is spread about victims of sex trafficking and not helping anyone or anything that's not helping. And I believe sex workers deserve better. In this case, we are talking about sex work in the 1800s, which still legitimate work. And the people who were doing this work, trying to survive in a patriarchal society, determined to keep them oppressed and in line. The issue mainly is just the rampant lack of safe sex practices and spread of STIs that affected both the workers and the people paying for the services. So that's my aside. (laughs) Good to have put that out there. Okay, so uh, he is now alone in London, uh, falling back into old habits of seeking out frequent company of sex workers, which exposes them to STIs, some of which have the possibility of affecting mental health long-term on top of his already existing not great mental state. During his time living in London, he became increasingly paranoid and delusional. On several occasions, he showed up at Scotland Yard to register complaints of men coming into his bedroom at night attempting to poison him. Okay. He was sure, <laughs> he, he was convinced that there were members of the uh, Fenian Brotherhood, which is an organization for Irish Republicanism founded in the U.S. in 1858. He was convinced that they were breaking into his lodgings and attempting to assassinate him. The uh, possible source of this delusion in particular was an instance during the Civil War in which he was ordered by a superior officer to impart a punishment on an Irish soldier in the Union Army that involved branding the man's face to mark him as a deserter. This story is unverified. Historians disagree whether the Union Army used branding as a punishment for desertion. However, if it is true, 
it would explain why he might later, while during a delusional state, think that he was being pursued by Irish nationalists bent on punishing him. Yeah. So uh, he made these reports to the London police several times, even persuading the commissioner of police back in New Haven to write to the yard to enforce the validity of the fears that Minor had. Uh, one of these reports he made in January of 1872 claimed that he had been drugged and that he was afraid that he was going to be murdered and his death made to look like a suicide. He was so convinced that he was being targeted by the Fenians that he took to carrying a gun. Despite his continued contacts to the police, nothing was ever done after the first complaint when the police came and checked out his lodgings, determined that there had been no break-in, that despite his increasing delusional state, nothing further was done. Okay. okay. So basically uh, this man is unhinged and he doesn't have any support anyone validating him anyone yes. trying to do anything to make him feel safe they're just like well can't do anything yes no yeah. no evidence not doing anything yeah okay and so uh now i will pivot and introduce you to george Merritt. uh Merritt and his family lived in lambeth marsh as its status as a slum meant for cheap living so like I said, this this uh, this area was not just the seedy side of society living there. Like there were like families living there because it was cheap and they were laborers and they were like, okay, yeah. um, I'm not getting paid a lot. I need to live close to where I'm working and I need it to be cheap. This works. He was employed for eight years as a stoker at the Red Lion Brewery. So uh, stoker are the people responsible for keeping the fires in the brewery burning around the clock. So to keep the vats up at a rolling uh, boil so they could malt the barley. And he was a young family man. He was 34 years old. He lived with his wife and six children in oh. quarters straight out of a Dickens novel, like dingy, soot-stained, cramped quarters with him, his wife, Eliza, their six children, ranging in age from 13 years to 12 months. And his wife, Eliza, was expecting their seventh child. Oh, boy. Yeah. So like most of Lambeth, they were a poor family living on a meager income. So early in the morning on Saturday, February 17th, 1872, just a little after 2 a.m., Merritt uh, gets up. He gets ready for his uh, dawn shift at the brewery. It was winter in London, so he dressed as warmly as he could afford, like a threadbare coat over uh, like a, a jacket, patched shirt, corduroy trousers, heavy socks, heavy boots. Not like high fashion, but he was going to be shoveling coal into brewery fires for the next eight hours. Didn't really care yeah. about his appearance too much. He left the family home. His wife watched him from the house as he paused under one of the newly installed gas lamps on their streets to light his pipe before turning the corner and continuing down the street. It's a route he took every day without issue. However, on this night, George Merritt would never reach the brewery entrance. As he reached the north wall of the brewery, there was a sudden shout, and out of the early morning darkness, Merritt saw a man begin chasing him and shouting at him. Naturally, he was frightened by this, and uh, while Lambeth Marsh was the type of neighborhood where there was always, like, petty crime and robberies being carried out by, like, mask-wielding figures lurking in dark alleys waiting to, like, jump out and go, ah, give me your money. This seemed different. This was a guy running out of the darkness, just shouting and chasing him, and so he ran. And as he looked back, he saw this angry, yelling man stop, pull out a gun, and fire at him. The first shot missed. It struck the wall of the brewery. Uh, Obviously, he tried to run faster and shout for help. Several more shots happened, uh, bouncing off the outer walls of the brewery before the next shot struck Merritt in the neck. 
after no. which he fell to the pavement and a pool of blood started spreading out over the cobblestones. Oh, no. And uh, this is when the police finally arrived. Merritt was lifted from where he fell, was loaded into a hansom cab, which was hailed from nearby Waterloo Road. The driver was instructed to take him as fast as possible to St. Thomas's Hospital. Uh, there was unfortunately nothing to be done. Uh, uh, when the doctors examined his wounds, uh, they found that his cartoid artery had been severed and then his spine had been snapped by two large caliber bullets. So they were not able to save him and he was declared dead upon arrival at the hospital. So back at the scene of the crime, the police already had taken the shooter into custody as he made no attempt to flee. He was still standing on the spot where he had fired the gun. He still had the smoking revolver in his hand. And when approached by the police and asked who fired the shots, William Chester Minor readily admitted that he had done so. And when asked whom he fired at, he replied with the following sentence. It was a man. You do not suppose I would be so cowardly as to shoot a woman. Oh, so he, he was taken seven kids in a yeah. wife. Uh, Minor was taken into custody with no issues. He very calmly was telling the police, transporting him that it was a, it was an accident. He shot the wrong man. He insisted that he was chasing after someone who had broken into his room and was defending himself as he had every right to do. He was charged with the murder of George Merritt. He was taken to Horsemonger Lane Jail. Brief aside, that is the best name for a jail I've ever horsemonger <laughs> horsemonger lane. I love I love this era of just just name stuff after what people do on it. What do they well what what's on the street? What's on the street? Guy sells horses. All right, we'll call it horsemonger lane. <laughs> Sorry, I, I love that. They were kind of hoping this was a, gonna be a simple open and shut case. Like they had the guy, they had the gun, he said, Yes, I shot him. Like simple case. Here's the wrench in the gears. William Chester Minor was an American citizen. <laughs> so Ooh. Yet now on Saturday morning, the U.S. minister in London was informed that one of their army surgeons was being held on a murder charge. And so it seemed on the surface, a simple case of this guy shot and killed this other guy and admitted to it at the scene, case closed, was now an international incident. And the British papers were real eager to jump onto that story and vent in print about their across the pond former colonies. The South London Press uh, said, quote, the light estimation in which human life is held by Americans may be noted as one of the most significant points of difference between them and Englishmen. And this is the most shocking example of it brought to our own doors. So Scotland Yard began their investigation into the incident as Miner's only statement continued to be that he had shot the wrong man by accident and that he had been in pursuit of someone who had broken into his home. And in the process of their investigation, they learned about his history of mental illness uh, and his tendency towards uh, severe paranoia and delusions. So during his stay at the jail at Horsemonger Lane, his delusions only worsened. He was assigned a watchman from London's Bethlehem Hospital for the insane in order to make sure he did not attempt to complete suicide to evade justice. This man's name was William Dennis. Uh, William Dennis later testified at trial as to the mental state of minor uh, during this time, uh, each morning upon waking, Miner would immediately accuse Dennis of being paid off by those attempting to kill him. Specifically, he thought that Dennis was being paid to molest Miner in his sleep. Oof. He would then spit repeatedly at Dennis and frantically search under the bed in his cell, looking for the people he insisted were hiding there, planning to kill him. Okay. And this was every morning. Okay. That A must be exhausting for poor Dennis. Yeah. 
this testimony, along with testimony as to Miner's previous deteriorating mental status, including some testimony from his stepbrother, George, uh, recounting incidents at the family home in New Haven, where he would accuse his family members each morning of trying to break into his room in the night to molest him and trying to poison his food at breakfast, asserting that they must also be in league with the people he insisted hid in the attic and come out at night to torment him. All okay. of this testimony served to attest to the mental state of Minor at the time that he fired the gun at George Merritt. He was found not guilty on the grounds of insanity and detained in safe custody until Her Majesty's pleasure be known. That's a very eloquent sentence and a very nice way of saying, you're not going anywhere. You're not guilty on reasons of insanity, but that doesn't mean you're allowed to walk out of here. He was to yeah. be relegated to the Asylum for the Criminally Insane at Broadmoor in Berkshire. Is it Berkshire or Berkshire? You're going to hate this. What? Berkshire. I'm going to go with Berkshire. <laughs> <laughs> so he was to be relocated to the Asylum for the Criminally Insane at Broadmoor in Berkshire. During his time at Broadmoor, uh, because he was a person of means and class, he had nicer accommodations than the average inmate of an asylum at the time he was Classist. allocated and, and it was classism and he's not even british he's american he's american no but he still had class and he had money and he had wealth no it's wild uh, so he was allocated two rooms in, in the asylum and he was allowed books and painting materials and visitors he also was aware that even though he had been determined to be not guilty because of his mental state, he had still caused a woman to be a widow with seven children to care for. So he arranged for Eliza and their children to be financially taken care of. Oh, good. I was yeah. so worried the whole time you were, you were talking. I'm sitting here like, what happened? Because a lot of times what happened in those situations is if a woman was a single mom and could not find means, she had to turn to sex work. Yeah. Or she had to turn like to having her kids work in like in the workhouses in, yeah yeah the workhouses and stuff yeah. like that so but no he arranged he arranged for Eliza and the children to be taken care of financially and because of this Eliza began visiting him in Broadmoor once a month and she would collect books to bring him from various bookshops around London and it was because of one of these visits that Miner started his new occupation during his time in this asylum in one of the books that Eliza brought to him, he found an eight-page flyer insert from one Dr. James Murray, who was the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, who was appealing to readers to submit words and quotations for the new Oxford English Dictionary. So because he was able to have books in his rooms, he started collecting more and more books and turned one of his two rooms into a library, and he set out in earnest to become a principal contributor to the first edition of the OED. For almost 20 years, Miner and Murray corresponded about the finer points of English lexico lexicography, and Miner became the most prolific of contributors to the dictionary's creation to the point where he is now listed as a co-creator of the Oxford English Dictionary. The entire time, this, this whole time, Murray is unaware that the Dr. W.C. Miner with whom he is corresponding was a resident of Broadmoor and not one of like the attending doctors. <laughs> <laughs> and it's um like Murray and he would like constantly I just I just remembered that he was a doctor so he was probably signing them Dr. Minor yeah. instead yeah. Of yeah so Murray was just like oh I guess he works there and like he would invite he'd be like oh uh, like you, we should meet in person come travel to my house in Oxford and Minor would always be like oh regret I'm sorry I can't travel at this time 
like I offer my like humble like heartfelt regrets yeah. and my inability to travel never gave an explanation as to why and it wasn't until the late 1890s when the first edition of the OED was like nearing completion and so they were giving official honors to all the people like who created and contributed and Murray he was like determined he wanted he was going to make sure that minor was included in these accolades so if minor couldn't come to Oxford Murray would travel to Berkshire which he did and so he shows up and he's like hi and like the he like is admitted into this very like large austere looking red brick building and it's like shown in and he's like brought to this guy at this very nice looking desk and he's like oh you must be dr minor who i've been corresponding with this whole time and the man he's talking to is like no i'm the i'm the governor of the broadmoor insane asylum i mean yes dr minor is here but he's an inmate here (laughs) (laughs) and so after that initial shock murray was like whatever (laughs) he's still my bestie And he became like a regular visitor at Broadmoor and talked to Minor. That's true. Unfortunately, by 1902, Minor's mental health had greatly deteriorated. And trigger warning for grievous bodily mutilation and genital mutilation and general not great stuff. His delusions caused him to cut off his own penis in an effort to prevent his delusions from becoming more real than they already felt. Um, apparently a lot of his later delusions and like he was convinced that he was being kidnapped and taken to I think it was Istanbul and made to like like be forced at gunpoint to commit like sexual aggression against children and so he's like if if this is what's going to keep happening I'll just cut my penis off and if I cut my penis off they can't make me they can't make me keep doing this no one was making you do this I don't remember why he had access to a knife, but he did, and he mutilated himself because of his delusions, and it was very unpleasant. In 1910, uh, after very strong advocation from Murray, from the U.S. consulate, and from his family, Minor was released from Broadmoor and allowed to return to the United States on the condition that he would then be reconfined to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, where he had been initially placed after uh, first showing signs of deterioration in the army so they released him from broadmoor but just on the condition that he wasn't going to go free he was gonna go home and then be reconfined in a hospital in america so uh it's at saint elizabeth's hospital in washington dc uh he was finally given a diagnosis of and treatment for schizophrenia uh but as this was the early 20th century that treatment probably didn't help very much and possibly made his symptoms worse because treatment for that was not good usually yeah in 1919 he was moved to the retreat for the elderly insane in hartford connecticut very unfortunate names for all of these institutions I'm, um, I'm assuming most of the uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital, I think, is still in existence. Most of these places are closed now. Yeah, but, but they probably call it like St. Elizabeth's Hospital for Psychiatry or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Or like the, the, in my last episode, how that guy was institutionalized in the Bradable Insane Asylum. Yes. That's still around. They call it Bradable Retreat. And it is a mental health inpatient facility. Uh, in 1919, he was... Like I said, the Retreat for the Elderly Insane in Hartford, Connecticut. A truly unfortunate name. 
but that's he was able to be closer to his remaining family. And then in 1920, he developed complications from catching pneumonia and he died at the age of 86. Semi-fun bonus media about this. In 2019, there was a movie uh, released that was based on Simon Winchester's book. Uh, the book is called The Professor and the Madman. Excellent book. He did some really great research into this whole thing. There's so many more details in the book that I couldn't include here because of time constraints. If you want to know more about this, I highly recommend it. But it is truly unfortunate that the movie starring Mel Gibson and Sean Penn really, really sucked. First of all, it starred Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah that's unfortunate which one did he play he played dr murray and sean penn played william chester minor uh, there was also a truly excellent episode of drunk history about this uh, season five episode two narrated by doug jones and i always love a good episode of drunk history so that was a good one but yeah uh, my sources for this obviously were uh wikipedia and murderpedia and then some articles on uh, alcation.com, The Tortured Mind of William Chester Minor by Rupert Taylor, on thevintagenews.com, The Sad Life of William Chester Minor, one of the largest contributors to the OED who was held in a lunatic asylum for murder at the time by Tiana Radeska, uh, and then a Mental Floss article by Luke and Riley, The Murderer Who Helped Make the OED, and then of course... The Professor and the Madman, A Tale of Murder, Insanity, and the Making of the OED by Simon Winchester. So I initially uh, heard about this crime because I wanted, I was reading books about the Oxford English Dictionary because I'm that kind of nerd that's like, I would love to learn about the history of the Oxford English Dictionary. <laughs> and I, I had read another one that was about the guy who revised the Oxford English Dictionary and I was like oh that was cool that was in like the 60s I was like oh that was so cool and fascinating and such a cool like history of like English linguistics and lexicography and this is very cool I would like to read more about the Oxford English Dictionary. <gasps> there's true crime in this one <laughs> awesome yeah so there's I, I wish I had been able to find more about George Merritt because this initially was one of those ones where the majority of the information that you look up is a, they're like oh it's this guy he helped write the OED and also he killed a guy I'm like well, show me more information about the guy who died you know the important person like unfortunately that's a huge problem yeah where we sensationalize crime which in itself I mean the fact that we're able to have a true crime podcast and there's a million a lot of people would say it's problematic because it glorifies crime but the reason it glorifies crime is because the media glorifies the crime instead of honoring the victims of the crime right nine out of ten times like you look up ted bundy for instance and you've got wikipedia oh articles that are miles long and articles and documentaries that are miles long and maybe a small blurb about each victim sometimes just the name and the age they were yeah that was great that was really well done and really fascinating oh thanks <laughs> Where can people find us? Well, if they have, if you guys have questions, comments, concerns, stories you want to tell us, we not things you want to type as though you're whispering in our ear, uh, you can do so by emailing us at trulyfabulouslymonstrous at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram that hopefully by the time you're listening to this is updated more than once every three weeks. Uh, that's trulyfabulouslymonstrous. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can check us out at TFAB Monster Pod. It's mostly memes. But yeah. <laughs> Better than nothing. 
yeah, so tune in next week uh, when Ace tells us a spookums. Yes, I should do notes about that. Yeah. I haven't even picked it yet. <laughs> but by the time you hear it, I will have. Yes. <laughs> we'll be there. We hope you will too. Bye. Bye.